we are so encouraged because no matter the season and no matter the circumstances, when we open God's word, God's word is front and center, and we find comfort and inspiration and conviction through his word. And that's what we're going to do today as we begin a new series. Before we do open this new series, I just want to say, church, you are a generous congregation. We raised over $5,800 for the Maui fire response. And so, yes. Your generosity will go a long way as we partner with Reach Global Crisis Response. And they will be sponsoring, I'm sorry, they will be partnering with the Hawaii District of the EFCA. And please know that your gifts, your donations, your contributions will go a long way for years to come as we respond to this crisis. Well, again, we just shared that we're starting a new series. And this is a series that will give us the opportunity to focus our attention solely on the name of God. In fact, when you look at the Bible and you go throughout the Bible, you'll see a variety of names and titles that are attributed to God. Some of the names and titles that we'll learn this series might be new to you. Maybe you've never heard these titles. Other titles maybe you're very familiar with. I trust that from week to week as we learn about God's titles and we learn about his names, that we're going to be impacted in a way that will transform our lives. You see, because names are significant, right? Your name is important, whatever your name might be. There's a reason why you were given your name. So names hold a lot of significance. And that was certainly the case in the Old Testament. And so we're going to explore some names and titles as we see throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to use the Psalms as our jumping off point. So these titles and names will appear in one form or another in the Psalms. But then we'll explore the entire Old Testament to look at these names in a bigger picture. And so the Psalms will serve as our starting point, our jumping off point, And then we'll explore the entire Old Testament. And the title of our opening message for this new series is El Shaddai, the Almighty God who satisfies. El Shaddai, the Almighty God who satisfies. And before we get into the heart of this opening message, what I thought I'd do is this. I'd take a few minutes to talk about the very name of God. Again, in the weeks to come, we'll look at all different titles, all different names, but I want to talk right now about the very name of God so that we can lay the foundation. I want you to look at these four letters up here. In the Hebrew, we read from right to left. Okay? And so, what you have there are four letters in Hebrew. The first one, from right to left, Yod, followed by He, followed by Wa, and then followed by He again. And these correspond to our English Y-H-W-H. 
Yod, Y, Hey, H, Wa, W, and Hey, H, Y, H, W, H. Now, in a minute, we're going to watch a video. And I wanted you to see these four letters because these four letters will be featured in this video. And before we watch the video, I want to introduce you to another word. It's the word tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton simply means four letters. Tetra. For those of you who love to play Tetris, did you know that each of the Tetris pieces are four components, just in different shapes? So you have tetra, meaning four, grammaton means letters. And so tetragrammaton, for our purposes, refers specifically to the Y-H-W-H, the very name of God. And so with that in mind, we're going to watch a video together, and then I'll come back up here, and we'll continue on with our message. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here, Lord, written in all capital letters. This is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them, Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Ehyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. 
Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah. It's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases, the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of Lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. All right, class. Your exam next week. No, no. Hopefully, that gave you a little background on uh, how we arrived with um, some of the names that we hear attributed and ascribed to God. And so we share that because maybe throughout this series, or maybe just in general, you might hear names like Jehovah or Yehovah, Adonai. And so just keep in mind that, you know, Jehovah, the word Jehovah, which you'll, you might hear throughout the series, or again, just in general, that's a, a name that kind of came to us later on through scribes. And so... Uh, just know that when we go back to the WH, I'm sorry, the YHWH, okay, probably the most likely pronunciation of God's name that we might want to uh, consider is Yahweh, right? Yahweh, but whether it's Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, Lord, He is our God. And today we're going to look at this Almighty God by studying. El Shaddai, that designation of our God. And so, with that in mind, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. And we're going to look at verse 1. And remember, this is going to be our jumping off point to help us now then explore the Bible. Psalm 91, verse 1. And today we're going to look at a variety of passages in the Old Testament, so I'll give you a few minutes each time I share a passage with you so that you can turn there and you can get a visual of what we're talking about. Psalm 91, verse 1 says this. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Almighty is from the Hebrew word Shaddai. And when you put together the compound word El Shaddai, you have God Almighty. Our God is mighty. He is strong. He is all-powerful. At the same time, what we're going to learn today is this mighty and strong and powerful God also has a tender, nurturing, nourishing, satisfying side to him. Now, I know it's still hot out there, 
right? And this week, I hear it's going to get hotter, right? So it's still hot, but eventually fall will come. Eventually winter will come. And when it starts to cool down, a hot bowl of soup will satisfy. For me, a pumpkin spice latte will satisfy. In fact, I love anything pumpkin. You give me anything pumpkin and I'll eat it or drink it. Pumpkin just satisfies during the fall season. And that's why we can understand El Shaddai to mean more than just almighty, powerful. Yes, God is strong. Yes, he's like a mighty mountain. Yes, he is a fortress. But he also provides the nourishment we need. He also provides the nutrition and the nurturing and the satisfaction that we all need when we are weak, when we feel empty inside. Church, God is sufficient to meet every one of our needs. And this morning, we're going to survey the lives of three persons in the Old Testament who came face to face with El Shaddai, the Almighty God who satisfies. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look at this first individual. Genesis 17, as you make your way there, I'll let you know there, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5 as we are introduced to this first person, the first of three, who will help us get a glimpse of El Shaddai. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Now in verse 1, we see the designation God Almighty. This is the first time El Shaddai appears in the Bible. And El Shaddai appears a total of 48 times throughout the Old Testament. 48 times he is referred to as El Shaddai. When Abram was 99 years old, God changed his name to Abraham. I don't think anybody here is 99, right? Nobody here is 99. Now, when Abram was in his mid-70s, right, God promised him many things. He promised him lands. He promised him descendants. He promised him many, many blessings. And yet, in his mid-70s, Abram, having received all these promises from God, he had to wait a long time to see these come to fruition. And during that long waiting, here's what happened. Abram grew impatient. And at times he took matters into his own hands because he could not wait any longer for God. Sometimes we learn the hard way, don't we? In the waiting Sometimes when we are called to wait, we 
get a little impatient. And here's what often happens. What often happens is we kind of jump ahead. We, we go ahead. And we start to walk a little bit faster than God. And then we realize, wait, wait, he's way back there. Come on, God, pick up the pace. You're so slow. But all the while he's saying, my timing is not your timing. I know much better than you. It's kind of like when you're driving and some car try, tries to just kind of weave in and out, tries to get ahead of you, weaving in and out, only to have to stop at the stop line. And here you come, slowly approaching the stop line, and there you are. You're even again. Oftentimes we run ahead of God only to wait for him. Again, I think in my life, more often than not, I go ahead of God. And I think my timing is right, but my timing is usually much faster than God's timing. He's saying, wait. In Abraham's case, several years after God made his initial promises, God spoke to him. But this time, when God spoke to him in Genesis 17, God revealed himself as El Shaddai for the very first time. He says, I am God Almighty. So for the very first time, when Abraham was 99, God revealed himself as El Shaddai. By that time, Abram had given, all, given up all hope. God, when I was 75, you promised all these things. Where's the fulfillment? I guess those were empty promises. So Abram had given up all hope. But when he was 99, God revealed himself to him for the very first time as the almighty God who satisfies. When Abraham was 99, Sarah, his wife, was 89. And they had longed for a child. They had longed for a son. But they had given up all hope. But look what happens in Genesis 18, verses 13 and 14. Genesis 18, verses 13 and 14 says this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So when Sarah was 89 years old, and her husband Abraham, 99, God says, you're going to have a son. And so Sarah laughed. She laughed at God. At the age of 90, Sarah gave birth. Abraham became a father at the age of 100. And they welcomed their son Isaac into the world and the name Isaac means he laughs. It was fitting for God to bring Isaac into the world, whose mother just laughed. God is almighty. Is anything too difficult for God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that is why he is El Shaddai. He is the almighty God who satisfies our needs. And I want to ask, I want to ask you a question right now, church. Uh, in the quietness of your own heart, I'd like you to think of 
this question for just a minute. Does your life in some way feel like it's lacking? Do you feel like there's some empty part of your life right now? And are you burdened by that anxious feeling of feeling empty? Please know that El Shaddai is ready to satisfy your desires and your needs. And I want to talk a bit about that, what I mean by he is ready to satisfy. Yes, at times, he might change our circumstances. We talked about that last series. He delights in changing the circumstances of his children. At times, he will bring people into our lives to encourage us. But did you know that during those periods of emptiness and discouragement and loneliness, at times, God may not change our circumstances. He may not bring people into our lives to encourage us. And it's during those moments that he reminds us that he alone is enough. Even if our circumstances don't change, even if nobody comes into our lives to give us a word of encouragement, when we go into his word in the quietness of our rooms, when we get on our knees and we cry out to him, those moments alone are enough to satisfy. So church, no matter our circumstances, no matter who's in or not in our lives, just know that God alone, the Almighty, is more than enough to satisfy the deepest longings in our hearts. Abraham experienced that. Let's look at another individual in the Old Testament. Please turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Ruth, chapter 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then we come to the book of Ruth. I invite you to turn to Ruth, chapter 1. I want to read to you verses 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi was a bitter lady. Now, that's not my commentary, okay? I'm just quoting her. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. So she looked out about her and said to all the people, hey, just call me bitter. That's my name. Why? Because all the events of her life up until that point made her bitter. You might know the story. The story begins with her late husband, 
Elimelech. He decides to move his family to the country of Moab. His family lived in Bethlehem. But he decides to move his wife and two sons to Moab because there was a famine in the land. And what's ironic is Bethlehem is known as house of bread. That's the meaning of Bethlehem. So the house of bread was suffering a famine. And so Elimelech decides to uproot his family and take them to a foreign country. Now, it'll be helpful for us to know uh, where the book of Ruth falls in history. The book of Ruth falls within the stage of history known as the Judges. And during the Judges, the nation of Israel found itself in a vicious cycle, the cycle of sin. And here's how this cycle went. God's people sinned. That's the first part of the cycle. And it's usually due to like some type of idol worship. So they would sin. Next came judgment because of that sin. And when they faced judgment, they would cry out to God and repent. And then God would bring deliverance. And so this cycle happened over and over and over from generation to generation. God's people did not learn. And so the book of Ruth fits right there within the judges, the cycle of sin. The famine in Bethlehem was a result of sin. And Elimelech was then faced with a decision. Does he go before God on his knees and repent like every person should have repented at that time? Or does he decide to take his family to a different place so they could eat? He takes matters into his own hands. And here's what he does. He impatiently moves his family to Moab. He takes his wife and two sons. And by the way, the name Naomi means pleasant one. So that's the name of Naomi. So Elimelech takes the pleasant one, his wife, and their two sons. They go to Moab soon after Tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. Life continues on. Naomi and her two sons, they continue. And her two sons marry two Moabite women. And for 10 years, they go through life. But then 10 years later, tragedy strikes again and both sons' lives are taken from them, leaving behind three women. Naomi, Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, and Ruth her second daughter-in-law. These three women who have no blood relation are now a family. Eventually, Naomi learns that the famine back in Bethlehem has ended. So it's time for her to go back home. So she talks to her two daughters-in-law and she instructs them, it's time for you to go back to your father and mother. Orpah agrees. But Ruth says no. And she gives a passionate speech. One that has uh, stayed in the hearts of so many people who love God all these generations. 
And Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I mean, talk about a conversion story. I mean, right then and there, Ruth converted. Naomi, your God will be my God. Wherever you go, I'll be right there next to you. Do you know what this tells me about God? It tells me that God has the power to overrule. Let's think about this. In your life and in my life, at times we make mistakes, we make bad choices, we make wrong decisions, and yes, sometimes we sin, and we sin severely. Did you know that God has the power to intervene and overrule even our mistakes and decisions. That's how powerful he is. And that brings me comfort because I look back at my life and look at all the mistakes, all the wrong choices, and even in the midst of all those poor choices, God has the power to intervene in my life and overrule. And that's what he did in Naomi's life by bringing a young daughter-in-law named Ruth. When they returned to Naomi's homeland, by that time, Naomi was a bitter lady. And when she said, call me Mara, she was speaking to all the ladies there back at home who looked at Naomi and they could barely recognize her. Because she had aged, she looked weathered, she looked beaten. So she said, call me bitter, because God has brought this on me. But God intervened. God intervened through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And God intervened by bringing a kinsman redeemer named Boaz who would marry Ruth, and Ruth would give birth to a baby boy, and they would name him Obed. Obed would become the father of Jesse. Jesse would become the father of none other than King David. And by the way, it was prophesied that the Savior of the world would come through the line of King David. God has a power to overrule in our lives. And he has a power. He has the power to take all of our wrong choices and somehow, yes, even use it for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Out of brokenness and sorrow, God brought hope and a future. This brings us to the third individual in the Old Testament, that we'll survey. By the way, we could go on forever and ever. I mean, pretty much the entire Old Testament is just one example after another of God's almighty power. But I focus on these three individuals because they are enough to show us how almighty El Shaddai is. For this third person, I invite you to turn to Job chapter 5, verse 17. 
The book of Job comes just before the Psalms. And I encourage you to turn there to Job 5. It'll be important for us to see the visual here in your Bibles. Job 5, verse 17. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And in a moment, I'm going to read this important verse for us. Job chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Earlier, I said that El Shaddai, the title, appears 48 times in the Old Testament. Did you know that it appears 31 times alone in the book of Job? That's 65% of the time that El Shaddai appears in the Old Testament. It appears in one book alone here in the book of Job, and this is significant. It's quite fascinating why it appears that many times in this one book. The verse that we just read, Job 5, verse 17, it's true. We read it. It's in the Bible, right? Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So don't despise discipline of the Almighty. That's true, right? That's a true statement. Here's the thing, though. When we read that verse just now, it was part of a greater speech by one of Job's friends who tried to console Job during Job's misery, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So while the statement itself is true, Job's friend was using it to blame Job. Job. God's punishing you for something you did wrong. So don't despise his discipline. Can you imagine being in Job's shoes, having your friend lecture you like that? When you've done absolutely nothing wrong? Let's get to know Job a little bit. If ever there was an individual who honored God, who was blameless, who was upright, it was Job. If ever there was a man who cared deeply for his family, it was Job. He was well-respected in his community. He was a judge, but more importantly, he was an honest judge. So you had this faithful husband, this loving father, this honest community leader, and he suffered the greatest pains you and I could ever imagine. His possessions were taken away from him, his livestock taken away from him, and then he suffered the worst kind of tragedy any parent would suffer. His children's lives were taken from him. And if that wasn't enough, then he himself started to suffer physically. From the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, his body was covered with sores. It was so painful that he would take broken pottery and try to soothe himself by scratching and scraping the sores. So here was this man who was once in a judge's chair, and then now he was relegated to the outskirts of the city, sitting on a pile of dung ashes, trying to soothe his sores. It got so bad that at one point, even his wife said, Job, enough. Enough. Curse God and die. How could we blame her? I couldn't blame her. 
she's seeing her husband suffer like that. Job, enough. Curse God and die. When Job's friends came and saw him, you know what they did? All they could do was cry. All they could do was cry. But as sincere as they were, just like Job's wife, his friends, after they stopped crying, they reasoned with themselves, why is Job suffering like this? Something must have happened. And here was what they reasoned. This was their presupposition. Job's friends, they presupposed, hey, God blesses those who are good, and he punishes those who are bad. That was their presupposition. Their observation was, Job, you're suffering. Their conclusion, Job, you sinned. And their recommendation was, Job, repent. And yet he had done nothing wrong. So my question to us today is this. Why would God allow Job to suffer when he did absolutely nothing wrong? Well, here's what we need to know about the book of Job. So I encourage you, the next time you open up the book of Job, here's how we ought to approach this book. It is beyond our human ability to know all the whys behind our suffering. The book of Job is not meant to answer all our questions. So please don't go to the book of Job seeking answers. The book of Job is meant to get us to a place of utter dependence and trust in El Shaddai, no matter our circumstances. You know, as one author puts it, we must trust God not only when we do not understand, but because we do not understand. Wife of Job, she did not understand. Friends of Job, they certainly did not understand. Even Job himself found himself questioning God. And when he finally was confronted, was he, when he was finally confronted by the Almighty, Job's best response, in fact, his only response, was to sit in silence and listen to his God. Church, here's what the Almighty says to Job. In Job 38, verse 4, here's God talking to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Job, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Verse 12, Job, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Verse 16, Job, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Job, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you know all this. 
all Job could do was sit in utter silence. Just like we're doing right now. There are moments in our lives where we just have to sit in utter silence and listen to the one and only Almighty God. This book is about how to face any circumstance, not with answers, because we will never understand it all, but with utter dependence on El Shaddai. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he suffered, he experienced pain, he endured hunger, thirst, persecution, injustice, shame, betrayal, and ultimately death. If ever there was someone who could not only understand what Job was going through, but went through it himself, it was Jesus. And that is why, did you know that Jesus was the fulfillment of what Job had longed for? Because in Job 9, this is what it says in verses 33 and 34. And this is Job speaking now. He says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. The reason why El Shaddai appears more in the book of Job than anywhere else in the entire Old Testament is because when we are at our emptiest and lowest moments, that is when we experience the Almighty the most. When we are absolutely at rock bottom, that is when we experience El Shaddai the most in our lives. God's instruction to Job is the same message to us today. He reminded Job that the only thing that he, Job, could control in his circumstances was his response to his circumstances. Job certainly could not control his circumstances. You and I, we do not control our circumstances. The only thing we can do is control our response to our circumstances. We do not have control over our circumstances. We can wake up one morning on any given day and be faced with something completely unexpected. And the only thing we can do is to control our response to those circumstances, knowing that nothing comes as a surprise to El Shaddai. So church, I leave you with this. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, and when you're about ready to get out of bed, and you swing your legs over the edge of the bed, just whisper these words. El Shaddai is in control today. El Shaddai is in control today. Father, we uh, come before you, bowing humbly, 
having been reminded that you're the almighty God who satisfies. So tomorrow morning when we wake up, God, remind us to whisper the words, El Shaddai is in control today. And with that reminder, may we be ever humbly ready to respond to any circumstance that comes our way in such a way that we will look more like Jesus. That is my prayer for myself, my prayer for our church family. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.